it's summertime in Britain, the happiest three days of the year. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. It's wintertime here in New Zealand and it's cold and crispy and frosty, like my soul. Beautiful. I was going to go like a beer, but oh, your soul isn't yeah. like a beer. Your soul, <laughs> partly you don't drink, so your um, blood soul alcohol level, your soul alcohol level is zero. Yeah, yes, I suppose it is. Hello, Tom. Hello, Sam. How the hell are you? I'm flipping brilliant, Tom. I'm flipping brilliant. What's our topic for this week? Well, uh, well before we do topics, Tom, we should probably Sorry. tell all of our listeners who are new what this podcast is about. Hello and welcome everyone to That Was Genius, a podcast in which me, myself, Sam, in the UK, where it's summertime, thrilling weather chat, and Tom in New Zealand, <laughs> where it's wintertime, even more thrilling a weather chat, discuss history topics on a theme each week. I would describe us as history fans... Possibly history buffs, but certainly not qualified historians. So no, history no. sometimes takes second fiddle to bad accents and stupid jokes. Yeah, and for those of you who listened to last week's episode, uh, there wasn't really much history, was there, Sam? No, there were. In fact, there was. I would safely say that there was no history. Because <laughs> the, I mean, the tagline to this podcast is a rather silly history podcast, and um, last week was certainly rather silly. But not really it very was. history-y. <laughs> <laughs> no, although in our defence, the topic was fairy tales and Disney. Yeah. So inherently fictional. Yes, yeah, that's true. That is true. This week, though, Sam, I've, I've been very good. I've got us back on track. I've certainly been very historical. Excellent. No and fun. what have you been researching, Tom? No, no fun whatsoever. No fun at all. Jokes and fun are banned this week. Yeah, it's You've had your fill last week. We're all going to learn something <laughs> here today. Uh, that sounds horrible. <laughs> Everyone must pay Yuck. attention. What's the topic, Tom? What's the topic? Well, what is the topic? What's the topic? What is the topic? Great escapes, isn't it? It's great escapes burp, this week, yes. That's not actually and great so escape, on. is it? That's um Bridge Over the River Kwai. That is Bridge Over the River Kwai, yeah. I knew something was wrong. I knew something yeah. was slightly up as you started humming it, but I joined in because I didn't want you to feel left out. I feel lonely. And... <laughs> You're just going to go along with yeah. it. That's fine. That's I'll fine. go along with pretty much anything. This is how all exciting events in my life happen. Oh, well then. <laughs> I just Fair tag enough. along. I tag along on other people's adventures. But yes, it is Great Escapes this week. How have you found it, Tom? Good. Very good. I I didn't want to do an escape. I didn't want to do a Coldit style escape. I wanted to do something slightly different. <laughs> I wanted to go down a military route. I didn't want to do the topic. I wanted to do... <laughs> no, 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 no. I wanted I've... to do what I want to do. No, I've, d I've definitely... Ke I could definitely justify my topic. But I wanted to do a military escape. I wanted someone getting in a pickle and managing to get out of that pickle through some creative ingenuity. I was researching that and then I came across an example of a well-known event, read the backstory to it, and I didn't realise that this was essentially a great escape when I found out more about the backstory. How about you? I've had a good time this week. There have been some absolutely brilliant escape stories over the years. I've done quite a lot of modern-ish stuff recently, and I really wanted to go back to classical times and find some great classical yeah. escapes. But to be honest, I couldn't find any that were particularly I interesting. Yeah, I, was <laughs> I found the March of the 10,000. Did you come across that one? I did, yes. And I could find the original text because it was a chap, I forgot the chap's name, but there was an, there's an original contemporary source from that, but it was very long. I was not going to get through it in a week. Um, so I gave <laughs> up on that one quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, I've gone I've gone World War One. I. I. Next week, I promise I'm going to go older, but this week I've gone back to World War One for a classic 
military prisoner of war escape with a twist. Oh, what's that? Oh, oh can, you, can, you, can you tell us a little bit more about the twist? I'm going to give you one word, Tom. One word that's going to tell you what the twist is. Charlatans. Ooh. Indeed. Ooh. Charlatans. Excellent. Charlatans and quackery, Tom. Oh, quackery and charlatans. I mm. look forward to this. It's not... It's not... It's not ducks, is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a story about basically this really rich duck uh, who has a, he's got a great <laughs> big tower dandy, full of money. Big and, dandy duck. <laughs> <laughs> And he gets out of all kinds of scrapes, Tom. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh, dear. He's always putting his beak into other people's business, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Good, good. So that's like, excellent. So, right, so I'm not going to give you any more about mine. I'm not going to tell you any more. I'm just going to leave it hanging. Interesting. I'm just going to let you know that it's something military. What are we flipping? Have we got a musical instrument? And have you got a drum kit this week? <laughs> Do you know what? I haven't got a full drum kit. I've even put away my um, tambourine from last week. Looking around. Look- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, if only. I'm going to have to go and find an accordion now. Somewhere in my house, I have an accordion. Um, I've got an adopted uh, sister-in-law who, I think she was about six or seven at the time, who found this and spent the entire afternoon just battering the hell out of it. Nice. I've never heard a sound quite so bad, except for when we had some friends around for drinks a few uh, months ago, and they bought their two kids who were uh, three and four, and they found my banjo. Oh no! And <laughs> uh, not a euphemism. And they <laughs> abs- again, they battered the hell out of it. And hell hath no fury like a three-year-old on a banjo, Tom. It's just it. It's not a sound you want in your life. Another bad one is a teenager practicing the violin. Oh, yeah. Beautiful instrument when played well. Fucking hell, it's awful when it's played badly. (laughs) God. Absolutely. Well, very briefly going back to the banjo. When I first got this banjo, I'd wanted one for years. I got this banjo and I signed up to a beginner's group banjo lesson or banjo class. And there is a worse sound than a three-year-old on a banjo, Tom, and that's 12 60-year-olds and a 28-year-old <laughs> in a room in a pub, none of whom can play or indeed tune a banjo, all trying to play, <laughs> all trying to play like the Kemptown races. <laughs> it was, oh, it was awful. I'm hoping this the was instructor on a had evening. the patience of a saint. <laughs> what, what did the other pub goers think? I, well, the pub very quickly emptied out. I think there was a reason yeah. why it was only allowed to happen on a Tuesday evening. It was awful, Tom. Absolutely dreadful. <laughs> it was something of very special. Very, very special. Very special. Very special. Anyway, right, I'm going to flip something. What am I going to flip? Uh, what have we got in here that's going to cause an awful lot of noise and or damage? I've got a kettlebell. I think we'll probably <laughs> leave that for now. Oh, I'll toss, that, <laughs> toss it above your desk. Throw it above my head. Let's see. what. How, how heavy is your kettlebell? It's 16 kilos. Big pussy. Which is, <laughs> which is what, 40 pounds, something like that, if you're an American? I'm going to flip a broken portable hard drive. There you go. How about Do it. that? Flip a broken portable hard drive. Yes. Would you like the side that says Seagate on it or the side that says nothing on it? We've had more exciting flips, I'll be honest. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to make something funny out of this, but I'm struggling. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The blank side, please. Blank side. Okay, flipping. And I've won, Tom, and I think I'm going to go first today. Hit me. It's been a while since I've gone first. Has it? You had a string of of wins, though, didn't you? 
I did. I had a long string of wins in which I essentially rigged the competition. Rigged the competition, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, I think you set me into bat first a few times. Anyway, your, your turn. You go. Yes. Show me what you got. Put your cards on the table, Sam. Put my cards on the table. I'm going to show you what I've got, what I've really, really got, Tom. I've got a... 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 Zigger, zigger, zigger. The Escape from Yozgad Prison Camp. Oh, you see what I did there? I just reworked the Spice Girls into the title for my segment. And it was it was a wonderfully seamless segue. Beautifully similar it was a too. Seamless segue. <laughs> seamless segue. There's, obviously, there's a million prison escape stories from World War One and World War Two, but I'm going to tell you a, a slightly different one, Tom, because this is probably the only prison escape in history that's been completed through the medium. First off, of mediums, and secondly, <laughs> through telepathy. <laughs> That's what I was hoping for. I was disappointed when you said telepathy. Well, there's an element of insanity in it, so maybe there's a little bit of dancing later on. Spoiler alert, there's not. Sorry. But, <laughs> oh. but yes, this is the only escape probably in, in modern military history affected by telepathy and Ouija boards, Tom. Ah. Indeed. So I'm going to take you back to, first off, to 1916, Tom. The prison escape was a couple of years later, but I'm going to take you back to the Siege of Kut, which is a town around 100 miles south of Baghdad, where the Ottomans managed to inflict an absolutely devastating defeat on a British and Indian military garrison, killing thousands and thousands of Allied troops and leading to the deaths of thousands more on forced marches through the desert to various different prison camps. Now, one of these prisoners was a young Welsh lieutenant in the Indian army, a guy called E.H. Jones, Tom. Jones? Very unusual name, that. I was about to say, very unusual name for a Welshman. Jones. Indeed, absolutely. What was his first name? E.H. I think it was probably Elhihaidhihirik, or something like that, which means cheese on toast. (laughs) Welsh rabbit. It doesn't, Tom. It doesn't. I I know about three or four words of of Welsh, Tom. One is pop-de-ping, which is microwave. Pop-de-ping, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that one before. Yeah, pop-de-ping. Araf. Which means slow down or slow. Yes, because you see that on the motorways, don't you? Yeah. And yeah. What, what's welcome to Wales? Is that the next one? Is that where you're going next? <laughs> no, Tom. Where Anne's going to go next is which means head, shoulders, knees and toes. Oh, there you go. Where did you learn that? How did that become useful? I learned that on a very long minibus ride. And when I say a very long minibus ride, it was a very long minibus ride. <laughs> it sounds like an incredibly dull one. Mentally, yes. <laughs> Oh dear. So there you go, that's the extent of my Welsh. And so this guy, E.H. Jones, and a host of other men and officers found themselves being marched for over two months to the town of Yozgad in the middle of Anatolia in Turkey, a place that was almost impossible to escape from because it was in the middle of the desert, surrounded by mountains, which themselves were full of thousands and thousands of bandits, bounty hunters, and Turkish military deserters. They were hundreds of miles from the sea, and around 500 miles from the nearest friendly forces. So a pretty bad state to be in, not an easy place to escape from. And once they got there, these guys found themselves locked into a group of boarded up houses, which had previously belonged to local Armenians, before those Armenians had been given a free and very generous long-term holiday by the Turkish government, is what I read about this story on the Turkish government website. (laughs) (laughs) Little Armenian genocide joke for all of our uh, non-Turkish listeners. So these soldiers found themselves in, locked into these houses, which were completely boarded up, so they were in almost pitch darkness. They weren't being fed, they weren't being given any water, there were no beds or bed sheets, so they were sleeping on the floor. It was pretty horrible, and many of them had been shot and injured on the way. 
To make matters worse, the guards had the audacity, Tom, to be charging them rent on the houses that they had rented from the Turkish army. <laughs> How were they supposed to pay that? Did they give them jobs? I don't really know. I think they were just running up long tallies and taking their rations in lieu of payment and or taking any of the money and valuables they had on them. So they're basically robbing and looting them. It sounds like a waste of administrative time, doesn't it? Just don't feed them. Well, that's basically what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. Rather than have someone actually tallying up how much they owed and then actually weighing out how much they're not going to feed them, they could have just not fed them. <laughs> yes. And got rid, of, got rid of the admin man. Get rid of your spreadsheets. You should have been there, Tom. Where were... Where were you during World War One and World War Two when the administrators really needed prison camps to be run more efficiently? Streamlined. Get more <laughs> streamlined, people. This prison camp is being run like a shambles. God. Prison camp consultant and personal trainer Tom Berry. <laughs> Executive prison... I like people whose job name is consultant. Yes. Because all they do... It basically means I chat with people. I turn up, I look at things and go... I have an opinion. Tut, tut, tut. Uh, here's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, great. I'm, I'm a consultant. I'm going to charge you lots of money. I mean, frankly, Tom, we're, we're wasting our time just putting our opinions out on the internet free for all. We should really be history consultants, I yes. feel. Yes, <laughs> I think we should be history consultants as well. No, 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 no. That's not very interesting the way you've written it. Facts are for losers. Here's a much better story. Not enough dwarves. You have not, not got enough, enough dwarves in yep. that story. Not enough... <laughs> Corpses that haven't been buried for 75 years. Have you considered adding a song to this book? Yeah, just, yeah. Hey, Starkey. Starko. I know the Holocaust you. wasn't really that fun, but just a song might liven it up just a little bit. Hmm? Just a little tune. Absolutely, yeah. It breaks up the flow. Yeah, it might it sound breaks up the monotony. <laughs> so, anyway, back to this particular prison camp, which, yes, was being run incredibly ineffectively. The prisoners were, at great cost, allowed to send some postcards home, but they were very heavily censored. Jones, though, he was a cunning little one, wasn't he, Thomas? And what did he do? Did he write it in Welsh, a language that barely anyone speaks? He did, Tom. He wrote in Welsh. What he'd do is he'd write the postcard in English, but he'd refer to lots of people by name. He said that the postcards are very difficult to send home, so best wishes to... And then he'd give a long list of names, which were actually just words in Welsh. Ah, so we clever go, Best regards to Mr. Popty Ping and his little sister Araf and another sort of things. And through these coded messages, he managed to send home that the microwaves were very slow at this prison camp and also that they were in really bad way, that they weren't being fed, yada, yada, yada. And these messages got through and managed to be sent back to the British consulate and the Coptic church in Constantinople who in turn launched an investigation and actually managed to significantly improve the conditions in the camp. So these coded messages really, really worked. And as conditions improved, things really actually got pretty easy and life got pretty good for the guys in this camp. The guards were clearly very greedy, as we've found out already, but were really pretty disinterested in guarding anyone and wanted an easy life. So the men were given a degree of freedom, partly because escape was considered pretty much impossible and partly because the guards made it very clear that if anyone did escape, the entire camp would be punished. So the British officers forbade it and basically policed themselves. So the inmates were playing football, they went on errands into town, and they even actually had a skiing team in winter. When snow came to the mountains, they were allowed to go up and play on the slopes and go skiing. So a really hor a horrible existence, Tom. Sounds, Sounds awful. Sounds all right, doesn't it? Sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so life got pretty good, but that didn't stop people from wanting to escape. 
The soldiers were bored, though, and they were looking for things to do. And one day, Jones's aunt sent him a Ouija board and a book about the paranormal to help him pass the time. <laughs> what? I know, right? I know. You weird aunt. <laughs> yes. It's well, going to scare you... the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah. All those friends you've lost in the war, want to chat with them again. Yeah, what, what's wrong with a bloody set of watercolouring pencils? <laughs> yeah, or just Monopoly. Other board games are available. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, pack of cards. You know what? It was really popular at the time. Ouija boards. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, they were really popular at the time. And I don't know if you've ever watched Peaky Blinders, but there's, there's kind of an element of this finds its way into Peaky Blinders because so many people were dying and people were, were reaching out for any glimmer of hope. The paranormal and Ouija boards and communicating with the dead and charlatanism essentially became really popular in the early. 20th century and so lots of people had Ouija boards and lots of people were using them to communicate supposedly with their with their dead friends. Do you know how they work Sam? Do you know how they work Tom? Yeah they're a complete lie you just push the glass around. Oh, it's, it's And it's subliminal so you basically get told what you want to hear so you have a yes. lot of people touching the cup and there are subliminal movements that you don't realise you're making but you're making and you, you basically get a message read out to you that is what you want to hear. It works as simple as that. It does work as simple as that and that is exactly how these guys plotted their escape later on ah. so very cunning very cunning and clever but but yes i mean it's absolute bollocks ouija boards obviously you can't communicate with the dead uh, clearly it it didn't work other than the subliminal messaging thing and jones pretty quickly worked out that it was much more fun than trying to communicate with the dead if he just gently pushed the glass around to spell out rude messages for all of his friends <laughs> is that what he did <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Is that, Uncle is that Dave. actually what we've done? Uncle is that... Dave is calling you from beyond. He says you're a knob. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Thomas, he would like, he would like to tell you to pull his finger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thomas is a strange name for an Indian man, Tom. Yeah, my accent wasn't very good there, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Goodness gracious me, Daffid. I don't know. We are all so Welsh here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hello, nice to Jones was a Welsh officer in the Indian Army, so who knows? Well, that's exactly <laughs> what you said. You you did point that out. So I was just trying to... I was assuming that he had had his accent influenced by Simon India. That's all I was doing. <laughs> it was actually... It was just a level of linguistic complexity, Sam, that I don't expect you to appreciate. Probably wise, Tom. Probably wise. I am an absolute moron. I'm a talented linguist. I've heard that, Tom. <laughs> Famous <laughs> Bond joke, isn't there? I'm a cunning linguist. Indeed. Anyway, uh, yes. So anyway, he was spelling out all of these rude messages for his friends and kind of and, and tricking them into thinking that they were being communicated with by the dead and having a having great fun. And his friends obviously were trying to prove that he was just pushing it around, but he pretty quickly realised that more and more of them were actually starting to believe what he was doing. And as a result, their tests, they're trying to prove it one way or another, they were actually starting to try and prove with their tests that it was real and not that it was fake. And he realised that what he had here was actually a very dangerous and powerful idea, and that people will do anything to prove they're right, despite clear and overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Bollocks. I've never experienced that in day-to-day life, Sam. No, completely. Absolutely, Tom. Imagine people absolutely ignoring prima facie evidence and going along with what their gut tells them. Vaccinate your kids, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) PSA. Do vaccinate your children. Unless you're obviously one of those people who knows better than every qualified doctor in the the universe, or you're that person (laughs) who knows more than the World Health Organisation. Because it's all just big pharma, isn't it, Sam? 
It's all just it a is. big, empowering conspiracy that makes me feel good about being thick. Yep, absolutely, yes. Just like the Jews controlling the media. It's just big farmer and Jewish people, isn't I, it, Tom? Absolutely, always Jewish. <laughs> it's always the fucking Jews, isn't it? It's always the Rothschilds. Anything that goes is. wrong. Injecting your kids with mercury to yeah, turn them Muslim. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bloody idiots. By the way, do unsubscribe from Alex Jones. He is a twat. Who's Alex Jones? Is it? He's the big theorist? screaming conspiracy nut from the US. It's very shouty, because shouting is better than facts, Tom. Yes. As everyone knows. Yes. But anyway, so far in this case, the charlatanism was all just fun and games. But as time went on, the guards discovered what he was doing and took an interest. There were two in particular. The camp translator, a guy called Moise, and the camp commandant, a guy called Krasim Bey. Now, Jones realised pretty quickly that there was potentially something in this. Here were two deeply suspicious men who were also, as we've seen, quite greedy. But if he was going to make something out of this and get something out of these guards, initially not necessarily an escape plan, but just, you know, a little bit of something for himself, he needed a sidekick, the classic plant in the audience. Right. And Cedric Waters Hill was the man. Cedric Waters Hill. Cedric Waters Hill, who was another prisoner at the camp. Now, he was an Australian who'd been flying with the Royal Flying Corps, later the RAF, and who had crashed his plane and been captured by the Ottomans. And he was a very talented amateur magician. Ooh. This sounds like a great camp to be locked up in. It does you've got the medium, yes. you've got the magician, you've got skiing. It's basically Butlins. It sounds fantastic. It sounds wonderful. I don't know why you'd want to escape. No. Turkey, very popular tourist it destination these days. You pay good money for that. Beautiful coastal resorts. It's just, just a failed siege. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cedric Watershill, C.W. Hill, was a very good magician who knew very well the art of visual deception and the trick of making his victims see what they wanted to see rather than what he was actually doing. So, you know, the classic magician's thing is to make it look like they've slipped up and shown you what they're doing. Whereas in actual fact, the actual magic trick is much simpler. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, has yes. been set up since right at the beginning and you just don't see it because you're so busy looking for the tell. Misdirection. Misdirection indeed. Smoke and mirrors. And he'd been having a lot of fun with Jones acting as the poltergeist for fun during the seances that he'd been running, moving <laughs> things around and knocking them over. So the two were pretty good friends and have been having a lot of a lot <laughs> of fun and jokes around. in their little shows. Yeah, they've just been pissing around together. But now Jones brought him on as his full-on sidekick to try and trick the Ottoman guards. And it started to work. And they started to think, well, actually, we could escape using this. We could we could actually get out of this camp using this trickery. And their plan was pretty simple. They convinced the guards that there was buried treasure somewhere in the mountains hidden by the Armenians before their, inverted commas, long holiday. holiday. <laughs> yes. Now, these Armenian spirits and spooks were now telepathically communicating with Hill and Jones through the Ouija board and would guide them to the treasure. Ooh. At which point, yeah, at which point the plan would be to have the spirits exchange the prisoners for telling the Ottomans the final location of the treasure, therefore setting the prisoners free ah. without incurring a penalty for anyone else in the camp. So they're essentially tricking the Ottomans into literally letting them go. Clever pair of buggers. Treasure. Yeah, it was a genius plan, an absolutely genius plan. And they played the long game. They played this out over months and months and months. And they did some really clever things. 
They use coded messages and contacts in British intelligence and in the church in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. And what they would do is they would send out postcards with coded messages on them to various different people. And then they would claim to the Ottomans that they had long-range telepathic communication abilities. And the board would tell them that some priest or bishop knew such and such fact about the camp or the guards or the prisoners. Brilliant. So the guards would contact Istanbul and discover that, yes, actually this priest did have this information, largely because he'd learned about it in a letter from a friend yeah. which had miraculously appeared a week or so earlier. Yeah. So if you're looking at this as a sceptic, it's so obvious what they were doing. It's so obvious. But that, of course, is how charlatanism works. The guards were trying to prove that it was real because they wanted to believe it. They, they thought they were being sceptical and analysing the evidence and, and you know looking at this objectively, but actually what they really wanted to see was the Ouija board working, and so that's precisely what yes. they saw. Yeah. And they got really close. They were, they were getting a lot out of the guards as well. They were getting better rations, they were getting better food, better conditions for themselves and the inmates. The guards were completely sold on this. Nicer skis. Better salad pets. Hot yep. chocolate on the way down. Yeah. Yep. Mulled wine. They'd get all the little <laughs> treats. Absolutely, yeah. Additional beautiful assistance for the magic shows. Yeah, a little hand job here and there from the guards. You know, just things to pass <laughs> the time, make life a little bit more... Ooh. A little bit more barrel. A hand job from a Turkish guard. <laughs> How much to charge hands, for one of those? But caring then? hands, Tom. Rough hands, but caring hands. <laughs> they even give you a shave and a haircut afterwards. <laughs> it's known as the Turkish delight, Tom, amongst the prisoners. It's the <laughs> the, the Turkish delight, right? Uh, what a horrible thought. <laughs> well, the plan was working really well until very, very close to the time when they were supposed to go out on the actual treasure hunt, when Krasin Bey, the camp commandant, started to get cold feet, as well as clearly very sticky hands. And <laughs> he and the pair realised that actually it probably wasn't going to work. They probably wouldn't be able to get over the final line and get the guards to actually release them. And so they very quickly changed tact. Now, what is rule one of being a con man, Tom? Uh, always wear slippers. Well, that's. I think that's actually rule 3.2. Slippers and slacks. Okay. No one okay. will find out the facts. All of the rules of con men rhyme. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Well-known rule of being a con man, Tom. <laughs> Little known fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Rule zero. Rule 0.1 is that all rules of being a con man must rhyme. Okay. Okay. What's uh, rule one? Have fun and don't touch your bum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did that work? Almost, Tom. Almost. <laughs> So rule one of being a con man, Tom, is... Misdirection. Don't get caught with an erection. If you do, <laughs> camp guard will do. Yeah. If you do, cover it with a shoe. No. <laughs> the guidebook says, find yourself a fez. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's... If you're hiding in plain sight, tell your victim they are right. Is actually not what I've got written down, but I had decided that it had to rhyme, so I had to rewrite it. quite well. It's make your victim believe that they are correct. So as soon as Bay started to think, ooh, maybe that maybe I'm being tricked here, they reinforced those fears. And the spirits started to tell Bay through the board that the two officers were scamming him and that they were actually trying to transmit war news via telepathy. And so the spirits told the camp guards that these two guys needed to be punished by being locked in solitary confinement. 
which of course they were because the guards still believe the Ouija board. It's just the two guys running the Ouija board who are con men, Tom, not yeah. the board. The yeah. board only tells the truth. The board is innocent. The board is innocent of all charges. So yeah, these two guys were locked in solitary confinement and banned from using the Ouija board as punishment for telepathically transmitting war news. One step back, two steps forward, just to keep the con going. I like that Just to keep the con going. They basically dumped themselves in it and made the guards believe that actually what they've been doing was, was spying. And here's where part two kicks in, Tom. They were really, really playing the long game here, these guys. They must have been bored out of their fucking minds to to have kept this up for so long because now that they were locked in solitary confinement they began to feign madness they claimed that they were being plagued by spirits desperate to get out whilst jones claimed that he was convinced that they were being hunted down by englishmen on their own side and he was going to be murdered in the camp and hill literally spent two months sitting bolt upright and dead still staring at a single page in his bible and didn't say a word to anyone they went balls to the wall on pretending they were mad wow but the camp guards seeing the value in having two psychics were completely taken in by this and were very quickly convinced that the two men were genuinely insane and that solitary confinement had driven them over the edge uh helped by the fact that they actually went on a very real hunger strike and even faked hanging themselves they genuinely strung themselves up at an allotted time only to be saved inverted commas at the last minute by another british officer and doctor who was in on the act so they very nearly actually genuinely killed themselves trying to prove that they were insane. They sound like they're genuinely enjoying this. Uh, they sound like they're genuinely insane. <laughs> <laughs> Living for Not this in the moment. way they want you to believe, <laughs> but very yeah. much method acting. <laughs> yeah, that's what I yeah, absolutely method acting. Full Christian Bale. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure there were a lot of people, you know, during the First World War in prison accounts who really weren't enjoying themselves and were, would have been quite happy at home doing yes. a day-to-day job and spending time with the family. These guys they were loving it. They were Living having a brilliant it. time. They were having the time <laughs> of their lives. They'd been waiting for this moment all their lives. It sounds brilliant. Yeah. By this point, they had been playing this game for over a year. They'd spent over a year feigning insanity after trying to convince the guards that they were on the route to buried treasure. But at the beginning of 1918, after their attempted suicide, the guards were completely convinced that these guys couldn't be saved and they shipped them off to a lunatic asylum in Constantinople, where they set about repeating and convincing the doctors of exactly the same things they'd done to the camp commanders. Which again was a stroke of genius because doctors are naturally logical people and so didn't believe a word of their psychic powers, which of course convinced them that these two were insane. (laughs) because suddenly here were two guys claiming to be psychic so the exact same ruse worked the exact same way for completely different reasons (laughs) these two guys they were absolute masters of manipulation of the human psyche they were complete geniuses the doctors were convinced that the pair were indeed mad and weren't just malingering or trying to waste time and resources and trying to escape and so in July 1918 it was agreed that the pair weren't doing anyone any good tied up in an Ottoman asylum and they were shipped back to the UK in an arranged prisoner swap. It took them so long to escape Tom that they actually ended up arriving back in Britain two weeks before all of the other prisoners at the camp who'd been freed (laughs) after the armistice. So so in a sense it was a successful prison escape in a wider sense it was not a successful prison escape because yeah. it would genuinely have been almost faster and yeah. a lot less painful to wait and there would have been a lot more skiing playing pool and watching magic yeah. shows 
had they just Absolutely. waited. Yeah. You know, it, it was a great idea, but possibly they got greedy by asking too much of the guards. They could probably have had a very nice life in the camp just occasionally getting yeah. the dead to tell the guards to give them chocolate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just doing the odd little prophecy here or there. Yeah. But it did work. They did manage to escape without cutting a fence or lifting a finger. They did get released by convincing the Ottoman army and the Ottoman government to let them go, which is bloody impressive. How did you find out about this one? Well, it was written up into a book just after the war in, in 1919. Jones wrote it up into what, the, what at the time was an absolute bestseller called The Road to Endor, which is a reference to a Rudyard Kipling poem called Endor about madness and death. And it's kind of been forgotten since then, but I but I stumbled across it whilst looking at other escapes because I thought I was looking at the Middle East. I wanted to do something I thought about the Middle East and kind of great marches across the desert. Yeah. And and this appeared and I thought it was just too good a story to pass up. It seems an unlikely story and you'd think, okay, well, here's a story written by the guy who supposedly performed this great escape act. How true is it? How much of this actually happened? But in follow-up books, other prisoners in the camp wrote up their memoirs and experiences and actually said that it is exactly as the two guys described it. This is exactly what they did. They tricked first the prisoners and then the camp guards into essentially letting them go. But they were very aware of the the kind of the power they wielded and very aware of the power that belief has. And he wrote a really interesting forward to the book, Jones, in which he said that spiritualism is actually really important and it's great for giving people in dire circumstances comfort and it's a good way to pass the time. So you can bring joy with it and you can make people happy and you can have a laugh with it as well as entertaining yourself. And it was a pretty good way of tricking some creature comforts out of the guards as well, which you didn't feel too guilty about. But his overwhelming message is that actually this is an incredibly, incredibly dangerous psychological tool in the wrong hands and can make people do absolutely stupid things. Otherwise, sane and normal people will do idiotic things because of the power of belief. I'm just going to finish off with a little quote from the foreword because I think it's, it's quite good. I began my experiments in spiritualism with a perfectly open mind, but from the time when the possibility of escape by these means first occurred to me, I felt very little concern as to whether communication with the dead was actually possible or not. The object of Lieutenant Hill and myself was to make it appear possible and to avoid being found out, and in doing so we had many opportunities to see the deplorable effects of belief in spiritualism on people. When in the atmosphere of the seance, men whose judgment one respects and whose mental powers one admires lose hold of the criteria of sane conclusions and construct for themselves a fantastic world on their new hypothesis. So basically, sane people will go mad and there is absolutely no way of telling them otherwise. Vaccinate your kids, you fuckers. Very interesting. Very good. So and that's there a, we go, Tom. That's a good one there to have go. discovered. I, I think you've done yeah. well to discover that one. Thanks. It's the escape from Yozgad prison. Yeah, I, I don't imagine that's a particularly well-known one. No, it is actually going to be turned into a film. Well, the film of it has been in development for over 10 years. Right. Which was being produced, I think, or the concept was come up with by Neil Gaiman, the, the famous author. And I think it was... Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller fame oh, yeah. was also involved in it and Jones's uh, granddaughter is also involved in the production but it, 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 there was a few articles about this film coming out in 2008 and it's never come out so I'm assuming it's gone by the wayside but a really interesting story deserves to be a film it'd be a really good film it'd be a good film it wasn't made in the 80s when Tommy Cooper was still alive Absolutely, I think, I think that would have been fantastic Tommy Cooper would have been a brilliant Welsh magician in a... <laughs> 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 you know, you don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> just like, just like. 
拉博士是爆，爱塞爱塞爱塞在底下。拉博士是爆，阿西爱爆。I was outside. I was outside the prison camp, and I knocked on the door, and I said to the guard, "I said I want to stay here," and she said, "We'll stay there then." <laughs> I think we should probably explain who Tommy Cooper is, shouldn't we?、Uh, possibly. I think he's relatively famous, but yeah, given the benefit for, of the doubt, I, I don't think Americans would necessarily know who he is. Exceptionally funny, big, cuddly Welsh comedian from the sixties,、oh, seventies, probably early eighties. Yeah, sixties, seventies, eighties. Famously、yeah. died on stage. I think he had a heart attack on stage, didn't he? He did, and he was a very slapstick comedian, and he did an awful lot of visual humour, and everyone thought he was joking. And so no one got on stage for about four or five minutes until they realised that actually he'd been pulling this act off for a little bit too long. <laughs> It turns out he was just dead. He was just dead. <laughs> he was just dead. Yeah, yeah. He just, just had had a heart attack. And he was、yeah. actually a very, very competent magician, wasn't he? But his whole act was that he was a crap magician. Yes. Constantly making mistakes, etc. But then he would also in the in the middle of that do some very good, some very good tricks. Um, very, very, very funny. Full of one-liners. Do、yeah. look him up on YouTube. Look, look up some old Tommy Cooper stuff. He's absolutely brilliant. I think his humour goes across. Yeah, it, it's not a British sense of humour. I think you'd appreciate it if you、uh, if you just like wordplay and slapstick humour. Very, very funny man. Very good, funny, very funny man. There you go. Yes.、Yeah, so actually, Sam, my topic for today involves Welshmen as well. Does it? Which is good because we haven't really discussed Welsh people very much in this podcast. In fact, I don't think we've discussed Welsh people at all in this entire podcast so far, have we? That's so English of us, isn't it, Tom? Just to ignore the Welsh. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough, but we have we've taken the piss out of the Scots and the Irish on quite a number of occasions. We have. Let's make some cheese on toast jokes before we go. Some leek jokes. Yeah. Daffodils. Singing. Anyway, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna talk about in a minor key, Tom. Here we go. Well, that's a joke about mining. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was,、uh, yeah.、Um, <laughs> It's not a good joke. I never said it was a good joke, Tom. It was a joke nonetheless. <laughs> I'm gonna talk about the 1346. Chauvachet of Edward the Third. Do you know what a chauvachet is, Sam?、Um, are you just wrongly pronouncing ceviche, which is Spanish, for, I think, for fish? <laughs> no, I, I'm not. Or、This、a raw fish dish. <laughs> nothing to do with fish, believe it or not. A chauvachet. A chauvachet. And I think I've pronounced that pretty well. Chauvachet. A chauvachet was actually something that was used a lot as a military tactic during the Hundred Years' War between England and France. And I don't think I would be out of place if I just go into a little bit of detail about the Hundred Years' War. What I say, because we we may have some listeners who don't know what the Hundred Year War. Was or is? I mean, the clue is in the name. It went on for 116 years, actually, Sam. It went from 1337 to 1453, with some breaks. It wasn't warfare throughout, but it is a period of time that is known as one long war. But yeah, yeah, there were there were certainly stops and starts. In fact, on the English side, there were five kings took part in this war, and five kings of France took part in this war. It went on for so long. The basis of the Hundred Years' War was the fact that since the Norman Conquest in 1066. The English kings had held lands in France, and technically, this made the kings of England vassals of the king of France, which is obviously not a nice position to be in if you're the king of England. And the Angevin kings of England, which is between 1154 and 1216, three kings, own huge swathes of France. At one point, almost half—I think over half of France. What we think of as modern-day France was actually owned by the English kings, but under the King of France. Yes, yes, on,、so, but and that's where the, that's where the sort of difficulty lies, isn't it? Obviously, the French kings would be unhappy with the English kings having this much power, and the English kings with this much power aren't going to want to 
you know, bow down on one knee <laughs> to the French yes, kings. Absolutely. Um, Paying taxes. Yeah, absolutely. So you can see why this would be a bit of an issue. And the French kings were continually trying to resolve this issue by basically trying to kick the English out. So taking as many opportunities as they could to make military gains and incursions into the into the English held lands. By 1337, which is the start of the Hundred Years' War, the English kings only owned the region of Gascony in southwest France because the French had been quite successful. We have a period of French dynastic problems. So the three sons of Philip IV die without any male heirs, and all three sons become king in, in succession, but none of them have a male heir. So we get to the stage where Philip also has a daughter, Isabella, but Isabella's married to Edward II, the father of Edward III of England. So we actually have a situation where Edward III of England is is the next line in succession to the French throne, and the French nobles don't want this. They don't want an English prince being the next king. As a result of this, the French managed to work out a way of making Edward's claim to the throne null and void, and that is by saying that it's through a woman, and it can't be through a woman. You can't have succession through a female through Isabella of course of course you can't Tom what, why you? absolutely of course you can how, how, how could that possibly happen so Philip VI thus becomes the king via a different succession line in 1328 now Edward III really didn't care I mean he uses his claims to the throne as an excuse to wage war in France but he didn't actually really care and I think <laughs> Ten years before the war broke out, which is when this succession dispute was a bit of an issue, before Philip VI becomes king, Edward III wasn't really expecting to become king of France. So um, he's just using this pretty much ten years later as an excuse to start a war with France. There were a few other issues as well. France has a strong alliance with Scotland at the time, and the First War of Scottish Independence only ended in 1328, and the Hundred Years' War starts in 1337. And uh, the French were always assisting the Scottish during that. And we talked about that in a previous podcast, didn't we? The First War of Scottish Independence. So these chauvachets were large military raids into enemy territory with a view to causing as much destruction as possible and, bizarrely, trying to bring over the population to the English side by saying, look, your French kings and your French nobles are doing nothing to defend you. They're completely useless. We'll do a better job. Oh, by the way, I'm going to cut your head off. <laughs> yes. Look at how easy it is to attack your territory. We've just done yeah. it. And we've burned your church down. And we've just raped you want, your females. You want someone who can do a far better job than this. Yeah. We suggest us. <laughs> we'll protect you. It is a very, very, very brutal very, very brutal war. And it's very similar, incidentally, these raids are very similar tactics to what were being used by Robert the Bruce in Scotland and England. Just big, long raids into enemy territory. Now, the Chauvachet that I wish to talk about is the Chauvachet of Edward III in 1346. The English under Edward III land on the Cotentin Peninsula in Normandy, which isn't actually far from where the D-Day landings took place. They had originally planned to land in Gascony, which is in the the southwest of France, which is where the uh, English had their territory, to assist with fighting that was that was going on there against the French. But they were hampered by poor weather conditions when they were trying to get across the the English Channel, and so they decided at short notice they were actually going to go just go across to Normandy and have a bit of fun there. The French had attempted to put together a powerful fleet to prevent the landing, but this had not quite arrived in time, and there is rumour that it could have been because the English had bribed the Genoese, who were actually providing a lot of the ships. The main French army was also very, very busy in the southwest of France, dealing with the fighting in Gascony. So about 10,000 English troops come across the English Channel and arrive... That's a lot by medieval standards. Yeah, 10... Well, yeah... 
you wait to see how big the French forces were. So 10,000 men. <laughs> uh, six frogs, five baguettes, and a man on a bicycle. I also thought, Sam, might, when I chose this topic, that we hadn't done bad French accents for a number of weeks. <laughs> Is a... <laughs> Phew. So, well, I, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad I got that hit. So I thought, falling, I thought off, just, falling off the wagon. I'll tee you up for those. So the army started causing havoc in Normandy, as was planned, plundering, looting, killing, burning everything in their path, and they worked their way east from the Cotentin Peninsula to the River Seine, which obviously runs down through Paris. The fleet was sent back to England with strict instructions to to resupply, reinforce, and meet the army at the mouth of the River Somme, which is just to the east of the River Seine. The English army worked their way down the Seine, continuing just to destroy everything in their path. And the French resistance, by all accounts, was just haphazard, very, very disorganised. And the Duke of Normandy, who was controlling the fighting down in Gascony on the behalf of the French, was very reluctant to leave until he had a decisive victory down in Gascony. So the main French army was still down southwest. The English then turn north when they're only a couple of miles short of Paris but find that the French have stripped the area of the countryside of anything useful. So they've basically uh, scorched earth policy, that sort of thing. So they've removed any mm. anything that the English could use as supplies. The French have also trapped the English on the west side of the Seine by securing all of the bridges. Edward, however, managed to get through across a tidal ford after a short battle and breaks through the lines, finds land that hasn't been stripped of resources, and then all his men can, can replenish, get fed, and um, everyone's a little bit happier. They reach the Somme to discover there are no reinforcements, they haven't arrived as planned, there are no boats, and no Flemish armies. There was also an agreement between the English and the Flemish, which is modern-day Belgium, really, isn't it? Yes. Who had attempted a rendezvous with them. So basically, the English were a bit stuffed, they were a bit trapped. Edward decides that a battle is inevitable, he can't get away, he can't get home after this chauvachet, gives himself some time to set up his army in readiness for battle at a little place called Cresci, Sam. A little place called Cresci. Now, I know you'll have heard about the Battle of Cresci. I might have done. I might have done. A pretty famous battle. I won't go into too much detail. It's reasonably well known, but again, we, we, we know we've got quite a lot of American listeners who probably don't know the Battle of Cresci as well as most English people who studied medieval history. This is where this fits into the topic of the Great Escape. Ah, See? Okay. See? Hit us with it, Tom. Hit us with it. There is debate, incidentally. Get your amongst... facts sort out. Get my facts. It's my fact deep. stick. No, we're not grading. It's a fact sword this a, week. A fact broadsword. Uh, well, it's going to be a fact... I want to be run through with your fact bastard well, sword. as you know, Sam, it's going to be a fact longbow. A Welsh uh. fact longbow. And it's going to be fire and arrows at quite a rate. So the Battle of Cresci is an incredibly significant historical victory uh, for the English against the French. King Edward III of England had around seven to 15,000 men, and lots of those were Welsh archers with longbows. They were light cavalry, some infantry, and some men-at-arms as well. And there were even, incidentally, some early gunpowder weapons. So they had some gunpowder weapons really? that, by all accounts, didn't do too much. They, they weren't particularly useful, but they caused a lot of chaos. And as we're going to hear, yes, the chaos is what played into the hands of the English. But that was really the point of early gunpowder weapons, wasn't it? They weren't designed to actually kill anyone because there was fuck all chance of them doing that. They were just designed to scare the shit out of you and break up large formations. Make a massive noise and just blow smoke everywhere you're probably right yes (laughs) so the English were positioned between two towns one of which was Cresci and beside the town of Cresci as well there was a river and a forest and they were atop a muddy hill and they had a pre-prepared retreat route as well so the English under Edward III were very very well prepared and then as we've established on a number of occasions when you're outnumbered you narrow the field of play down so very narrow position 
Contemporary sources massively exaggerate the size of the French army, sometimes almost 10 times as many as the English. Historians reckon there was probably two to three times as many French as there were English, so still massively outnumbering the English. Yeah. Uh, with lots She's talking of 40,000, 40, that is. Ab- absolutely, masses and masses of French. And lots of heavy cavalry and significantly Genoese crossbowmen who were, who were hired basically mercenaries. Um, the French, massive superior numbers, kind of slightly arrogant and overconfident, didn't really seem to get themselves very well organised. We hear early on in the battle there was an initial... Sorry, I just burped. <laughs> I should there was an initial belch of fire there was an initial... from the gunpowder weapons. <laughs> uh, thanks, there you Sam. go. Thanks, Sam. Covered that nicely. There was an initial archery battle between the Welsh longbowmen and the Genoese crossbowmen. And this is where we find out about the significance and the superiority of the English longbow, the Welsh longbow. The Genoese crossbowmen were, were significantly outranged by the by the longbow and they had a firing rate that was about two to three times slower than the, the Welsh longbow. They were also without their protective shields. Generally, these crossbowmen would have a protective shield that they would hide behind as they moved towards the enemy. Their shields were left in the ammunition reserves um, behind their lines, so still in the baggage train. And it seems as if the Genoese retreated pretty quickly after making a token effort, possibly because they were mercenaries, possibly because they'd been pushed out the front because the French were eager to get on with the fight and they they felt ill-equipped. And that's possibly the case that actually they came across the longbowmen and realised they were outclassed. They had an inferior weapon. So the Genoese start retreating back through French lines. The French at this point had started a cavalry charge up the muddy hill and they were getting pissed off with the Genoese people coming back through so there's a lot of chaos here as the, as the French start hacking at the Genoese men retreating so they start killing their own because they're pissed off at them getting in the way whilst they're trying to charge yeah absolutely absolutely sounds reasonable they're looking at the Genoese I wanted to do that to pedestrians on fairly regular occasions Tom bowl them over fucking <laughs> road rat- especially people rats. on their phones especially people on their phones oh. Don't get me started. The amount of people on their phones when they're driving a car. Christ. Oh, I know. It's awful. Anyway, this cavalry charge just became chaos. So they're not only having to work their way through Genoese mercenaries coming back, they're also going up this thick, muddy slope, and they're just getting rained upon with Welsh arrows from the longbowmen. It's a bloodbath. After this first attempt by the heavy cavalry to get through, the French retreat... And um, the English men-at-arms race onto the battlefield, kill anyone and anything they can find, loot the bodies, and then head back up. And by all accounts, over the course of the day, there were maybe 10 to 15 heavy cavalry charges by the French, each one repelled by the English. And the, the field of battle just becomes an absolute bloodbath. There are horses everywhere, people suffocating in the mud, people wounded underneath horses. It just is... Dreadful, dreadful scenes. Baguettes lying strewn and broken on the ground. Baguette. <laughs> I thought. I Croissants thought, flying. I thought, you were just, I thought that was a bit of First World War trenches poetry you were coming out with there. I thought you were just coming out with a bit of Siegfried Sassoon because I didn't hear you talking about the baguette. I thought you were saying something incredibly profound, but you weren't. You were being silly. And when the custard bombs fall, Tom, <laughs> what is man? Maybe the French would have been better off with baguettes. I don't know, Sam. They weren't very effective as they were. One of the significant weaknesses of their heavy cavalry was actually the horses weren't armoured. And the horses are obviously a big target for, for longbowmen. And uh, so once you shot the, the horses, the horses start veering off on all directions. And it's just chaos everywhere. They probably should have had the sense to cover their horses in baguettes, maybe. Like a baguette mail. There is no substance 
known to man harder than stale baguette, Tom, as you well know. That, well, actually, I've got a few others. Porridge. Porridge that's been left to dry in a, in a bowl. <laughs> in a child's bowl. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just a little bit of it. Another good one, two-minute noodles that have been left in the bowl and not been washed immediately. Tuh. Diamonds, <laughs> tough as anything. I get the feeling now that you're using this podcast suddenly as an excuse to uh, lay bare on your family all of the things in a passive-aggressive style you're not allowed to mention to them on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> oh, there's a long list. For fear of getting some side-eye. <laughs> there's a long list. First world problems, right? <laughs> Here I am talking about a bloody battle in medieval Europe with people dying left, right and centre when we're complaining about our washing up. Um, yeah, what was I going to say? Tens of thousands. Which incidentally sounds a lot like an English commander at the Battle of the Somme in the First World War. It does. Very uh, blackout. Over the top. <laughs> That's quite a good impression. Good Blackadder impression. Tens of thousands of French were killed including large numbers of nobles, whilst the number of English casualties was only somewhere in the hundreds. All because of um, probably better preparation by Edward I, but also the significance of the of the English longbow, which became the preeminent weapon in European medieval warfare. It was the battle that really changed, changed the medieval attitude to archery, really, didn't it? And believe it or not, I mean, it took a while for the French to react to it because we have in 1356 the Battle of Poitiers, which I almost did as well, because that was also a situation where the Black Prince this time, who is the son of Edward III, who is also an Edward, but died before he would have become Edward IV, led his own chevauchier, ended up getting himself in a little bit of a predicament and against, again, much larger forces at the Battle of Poitiers, used the the English longbowmen to great advantage and defeated the French. In that Mm. battle, in fact, the French King John II is captured. So devastating battle, the Battle of Poitiers for the French, they actually, the English actually captured the king. And the king was held hostage by the English until he died in, in English captivity because the French were unable to pay yeah. the huge ransom that the English were demanding. And then there's obviously Agincourt in 1415. These are all battles of the Hundred Years' War. From about 1429 onwards, the tides turn now on the English. We get obviously Joan of Arc and numerous other defeats where the French worked out that they could counter the English longbows if they actually just got stuck into the English before they actually settled down into formation. So there you go. I, I found that an interesting fact about Joan of Arc as well, Sam. So go on. when she became a prominent figure in the Hundred Years' War, the French troops had a chant. They would smash their shield with their weapon and sing... And the enemy would just walk off pissed off. They would just get so annoyed by the chart that they would just leave the battlefield and go home. That's not true. <laughs> You're telling a fib. I suspect foul play, Tom. I suspect a lie. I was thinking that it'd be quite fun when the English commanders were sort of taking a register of all the Welsh longbowmen and they'd be going, right, OK, I want to know who's here, present and correct, before we start this battle. Right. Jones. Jones, are you here? Half the people's hands go up. Yes. Present. What are the other popular, what are the other famous... Evans. Evans, Evans. Is Evans, is Evans here? <laughs> A third of the men put their hands up. <laughs> so there it is, Sam. That was, the, that was the Chevauchier that ended in the famous Battle of Crecy in 1346. There you go. The Great Escape by the English. I know you know a bit about it. I know you know about the Hundred Years' War, and I know that wasn't a surprise story, but I actually just think it was really interesting. I, was, I enjoyed learning more about it, and it's the fantastic age of chivalry. 
it's that period in medieval history that is referred to, for example, in the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, that sort of chivalrous knighthood is, is from this period. Slaughtering peasants and saving maidens, Tom. Slaughtering peasants and saving maidens. It's the only way to be. Yep. Hold the door open for a lady and then ravage her because she's of a lower political class than you. That truly is the spirit of being a gentleman. Well, it's, they say that chivalry's yeah. dead, Tom, and I, for one, I'm quite glad. And uh, I actually, I read somewhere that what was happening on these chevauchiers when the English were just burning down towns is the, the townsfolk, when they realised they weren't actually going to have a, a well-formed French army to defend them, knew that they were just going to have to do the best they could and fight and hope for a miracle. Because if they were of a lower class, there was no value in holding them hostage. So the English would just no. kill them. Yes. <laughs> because, they, you know, it's just another another man that could go and fight another day. So they would actually just kill them. There was no point. Well, I suppose you could just escape, couldn't you? You could just try and avoid battle and just desert the town. But they often did fight, despite massive odds against themselves. And they all died bravely, as most <laughs> French people do. No, actually, most yes. French people just retreat, don't they? <laughs> Most French people run bravely away. Yes, yes. That was interesting. I, I, I'm going to call it a slight stretching of the rules, but I think we'll allow it. It was a, a great. Es- it was a great escape. It was a, a great escape from a unpleasant predicament. From the incompetence of France. <laughs> Too busy eating camembert. I was thought I said camouflage <laughs> there. I almost said eating camouflage. Too busy eating camembert and sipping on wine, weren't they? French have probably had a better run of it if they stopped drinking coffee and smoking and started fighting earlier. And littering the streets. <laughs> Bit of a pigsty, Paris. It is actually, it's a dirty city, yeah. Dog poo and fag butts everywhere. I, I don't love Paris. I, people go mad for it, but I've, I've always kind of found it quite unfriendly. I love the Louvre. Oh, filthy. The Louvre is just unbelievable. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's it, it's not a particularly pretty city, bizarrely. No, I, do. I like the catacombs. The catacombs are fun. Oh, I've not been there. Especially the bits that aren't on the tour. So there's an entire second version of Paris, which is underground, which is like the old city and, and all of the old cellars and things and all connected. And it's abso- absolutely massive. Like, it's huge. And there's a lot of plague pits under there and things like that. And there's a bit that you can go on on, the offic- on an official tour, which is in itself really interesting. But there's huge parts of it are just filled with squatters and illegal nightclubs and things like that absolutely fascinating and people have raves down in the catacombs where they basically just sling some electrical wires over the metro lines and steal electricity from them and then power huge sound systems underground well there you go i did not realize that there you go yeah it's fascinating it's probably the most interesting thing about paris fantastic oh thank you tom that was good i'm, I'm glad we shared that shared this moment what are we going to do next My week perfect moment with you maybe we should do songs <laughs> well we could do something musical because i've done sporty stuff and um i know you're musical so I'm, I'm happy to do something musical let's do should we keep it vague that's should incredibly music? vague yeah that is incredibly vague music okay we'll do music wunderbar well i'm going to do chumbawamba's uh god when was it 1996 hit <laughs> excellent and lo they drunk a lager drink and then a cider drink and then a whiskey drink and then a vodka drink and they did sing songs that reminded them of the good times. Is this Siegfried Sassoon again? You're very cultured. Wilfred Owen, actually. Wilfred Owen. Well, Wilfred Owen. Well, I hope you had that Indian accent back again. 
I'll come again. Right. Well, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you have, please do get in touch with us on social media. Just search for That Was Genius wherever you are. And follow us, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. We put out new episodes every Thursday morning or whenever that is in New Zealand, Thursday morning in the UK time. We'll see you next week for a fantastic episode on music. Say goodbye, Thomas, in a musical style. Goodbye. Oh, I like that. I'm not even going to say goodbye. We're just going to finish that on there. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>